Hey guys, good morning. Hey, Happy New Year too. Thank you. I uh, made a resolution I wasn't going to get sick this year. Um, yeah, how's yours going? Just as good? I want to talk about that little guy right up there today, all right? Because there's something actually amazing God has to say, I think, to each of us through what that little guy represents. Um, I'm amazed, actually, in the Bible at how God repeatedly, again and again and again, chooses, um, well, cripples, the poor, cowards, prostitutes. And he takes these people who are the weak of the weak and the low of the low, and, and, and the people who are just simply powerless in this world. And for whatever odd reason, it's these people that God chooses to change the world through. Now, I want to show you a slide that talks about this guy a little bit, and it comes out of Deuteronomy. Here's what it says. It says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, that little word, treasured possession, there at the end, there's a Hebrew word that stands behind it. And we looked at it last fall, and it's something I want to revisit with you today. And it's pronounced like this, all right? It's pronounced segula, all right? That you are God's segula. And what's fascinating about this passage back here is that when God says it to the people of Israel, he says it to them after they've been out in the wilderness for 40 years, parched, tired, broken and weak. You spend 40 years in the wilderness, see how you feel afterwards, all right? And God comes to these people and he says, you, out of all the people on the earth, I choose you. And you are a treasured possession to me. Now, it goes on to describe a little bit as to why. And he says, it's not because you're more numerous than everyone else, it's in fact you're the fewest. But it's because I love you. And God has this really weird way of doing this throughout the Bible, where he comes to the, the weak of the weak, he comes to the broken, he comes to the cripple, to the poor, to the peasant, to the coward, to the tax collector, to the prostitute. And somehow he chooses them and changes the world through them. And today what I want to do is I want to, I want to share with you one of uh, my favorite examples of these segulas that you're going to see in the Bible. It's a guy named Gideon, and he comes out of one of these stories of the Old Testament. And my hope is maybe that by looking at Gideon today, um, maybe you can discover how God might say similar things to you. And, and, and think about you in certain ways that might defy what your reality seems to be. So let's talk about this guy named Gideon. Now Gideon, the story of Gideon, it comes in an Old Testament book of the Bible called Judges. And you find him at Judges chapter 6. If you want to follow along later, I'm going to be actually reading portions of the story today. But the difficulty I think we have when we go to this Old Testament book called Judges is that we think of, well, Judges. Right? I mean, when we hear the name judge, am I wrong in this, that your, your mind probably goes to something like this. 
You know, what is a judge? A judge is someone who sits in a courtroom and, uh, and he decides cases and he makes sure that fair rulings are put out and he keeps an order and a balance with the laws of the land. But this is not what the Old Testament judges were about at all. In fact, it's probably unfortunate we even call them judges because what they did had a very different function than what guys like this do right here. Because at this time in Israel's history, there, well, was no law in the land. There was no government. There was no judicial system. There was no police force. Law was decided by the families and by the clans and the areas that they lived. And what would happen throughout the cycle of judges is that you see a reoccurring pattern come up again and again. And it goes something like this. The people of Israel come into the land. And they get content, and then in their contentment, they stop caring about God. And in stop caring about God, they start getting allured by all these kinds of things God warned them against. And so there's this phrase that pops up again and again that the Israelites will have done evil in some kind of way in the eyes of the Lord. They don't relent, they don't turn from it, it goes on and on. So God will then hand them over to some kind of oppressing power, some kind of nation that's, that's looking to come into this promised land and take them over. And in their misery and in their suffering and in their brokenness, it's like they wake up. You ever have those moments where somehow, for some reason, sometimes it takes pain to wake up? And they do. And they wake up. And they cry out to God, and what God does is he raises up one of these people that become known as judges to come in and deliver them. So when you think about these judges, you can't think about something so much like this. What you really got to get in your mind is something more like this. Because these judges of the Old Testament that God would send, they, they were heroes. They were deliverers. They were people who were big and tough and brave and strong and were capable of delivering their people from these superpowers that were invading them and attacking them and knocking them down. Are you with me? So what's fascinating and why I love the story of Gideon so much is that when God comes to Gideon, he is not this. In fact, he never even becomes something that looks like this. Now, I think I've shown you a picture of Gideon here once before, but when you think of this guy, he looks more like this. <laughs> he's puny, he's weak, he's powerless, and he's a coward. Let me share the story of Gideon with you here today. From Judges chapter 6. Now, it says this. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we see the judges cycle, right? And for seven years, God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So we see the judges cycle, right? Now, who are the Midianites? Well, you see it circled there at the bottom? See, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, they had to get kind of close to that region and that of the woods. And you could read in the story of the Exodus, some of the some of the hostilities that broke out between Midian and the surrounding people groups and the Israelites who were trying to get through. And have you ever been around people that just love to hold a grudge? And you think something's done, you think something's gone, and then it's like 20 years later, at a moment of weakness when there's a chink in your armor, your nose is being shoved in it again. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, imagine that person times it by 10 and that's getting close to Midian. 
Midian hated Israel. And Israel came into this promised land, and they're, they're weak. They're disorganized. And they saw their chance, and God hands them over. And it goes on, and it says, Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and Amalekites and the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They, they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or, or their camels. They, they invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And what you got to do is you got to get this idea here going today of what it must have been like living in this time. Because for seven years, it said that the people of Israel were so threatened, so oppressed, and so afraid that they're living in caves. They're fleeing up into the hills. They're not in their homes. They're not at their businesses. They're not at their schools. They can't even grow food to eat. They're starving. And what's it like to live in fear for seven years that that day might be your last or your kids last? That if they're not carried off into slavery, if they're not killed, if they're not attacked, then they're going to starve. And what's it like to be like that when you're absolutely powerless to do anything about it? Have you ever been in those places where you stand before life and it's raging down on you and it's overshadowing you like this, this impending storm, and you realize that there in that moment, there is absolutely nothing you can do to change what's coming upon you. There's a word for that. I think it's called despair. And it's where Israelite, the Israelites are at. And God hears it. And this is what he does. Now, it says in verse 7 that when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, God sent him a prophet. And this prophet said, now, now listen up, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And they were a lot tougher than Midian. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. And it says in verse 11 that an angel of the Lord came, and then he went down and he, uh, he sat down under this oak tree in Oprah, and it belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his, wife, or where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord, okay, catch this, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. God comes to this guy and he says, the Lord is with you, Mighty warrior. 
And it goes on, and Gideon says, Pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever been there? God, why, why is this happening to me? If you're real, if you're here, if you're involved, if you care, why is this happening to me? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? Where are the miracles? And what about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us. It's like God's given up on us. And he's given us into the hand of Midian. But the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and, yeah, I'm the least of them. But the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. See, we come to find out that this guy named Gideon gets chosen to be a judge of Israel. But there's something else that I think we got to really key into about what this guy named Gideon is all about. So Gideon was a coward. I don't know if you caught some of this going through the story, but, but there's a few little clues that are dropped about what this guy Gideon was like. Did you catch this? There was this one where it said that Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. All right, now I don't know about you. I haven't done much wheat threshing as of late. But what I'm told is that if you're threshing wheat, you don't do it in a wine press, all right? In fact, if you're threshing wheat, what you do is you do it up on a hill, or you do it in an exposed place. You do it in a place where there isn't a lot of covering. And the reason why is as you're threshing the wheat, you want the wind to come through naturally, carry away the chaff, and leave the heavier wheat to fall right there. In fact, to go into a wine press, or a hole, or a cave, or a house, or wherever it might happen to be, is actually counterproductive to doing wheat processing, because you then have to kind of sift it all yourself. Are you with me? So why is this dude hanging out in a wine press? He doesn't want anyone to find him. He doesn't want anyone to see him, to confront him, to come and threaten him, to come and take his stuff. He doesn't want confrontation. He doesn't want to have to stand up and fight the battle that might come before him. He's hiding. And he even goes on, and doesn't he say stuff like this? He said, how can I save Israel? I'm nothing, God. I mean, my family's nothing. My name is nothing. I've got no power. I've got no clout. I've got no strength. And you know what? Of the weak, I'm the weakest. I'm the lowest of the low. I'm the least in my family. Later on, it's interesting. Gideon chooses to believe God. Or at least to take him up on his offer to see what happens. Now, now Gideon has this moment where he realizes that the evil being done by the people of Israel is that they start turning to all these other gods, Asherahs and Baals and everything else, and they start setting up these altars to these gods and worshiping these gods and sacrificing these, their kids to these gods and all kinds of deplorable things. And he realizes that maybe 
in some way, what they're facing before Midian is connected to this national sin that they, they, they happen to be engaged in. So Gideon kind of has this aha moment. He comes to this place and he goes, you know what, i got to get rid of this stuff. i got to get this kind of stuff out of Israel. i got to get these, these, these altars out and, and, and these, these worship sites out and all these things that are luring people in to do this stuff. But here's what it says. He says when he goes to kind of like deal with this, he takes 10 of his servants and because he's afraid, he does it at night. He doesn't go out by himself. He gets 10 buddies to go with him. Because it's always easier to pass the buck when you're in a crowd, isn't it? He takes 10 of his servants and they sneak out in the night because what are town people going to think? What's my family going to think? What's dad going to say? You, you, you know, what, what are my brothers and my sisters? How, how are they going to look at me? What am I going to have to face? And what I absolutely love about the story of Gideon is, you know, here we have this guy, right? This coward. And do you remember what God came to him and said? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. God comes to this nobody, this weakling, this coward, God says to him, mighty warrior. Because see, that's the kind of stuff God does. See, what I've noticed is that uh, God has this penchant for coming to people and saying things about them that, that quite honestly just aren't true. Or that, that God comes into situations and he'll say things about situations that just don't fit with reality. But the amazing thing about God is that when he comes and he says things that aren't true and that don't fit with reality, it does something. It actually becomes true and actually comes to shape and define reality. You see God come into darkness, and he says things like, let there be light. And it isn't just like some proposition where he's going, it would be really great if there was some light around here. God says something that isn't true about the situation, and what happens? It becomes true. And guys, this is what God does with you. He comes to the weak. He says you're strong. He comes to the broken and he says, you're whole. He comes to the guilty. And he says, you're righteous. He comes to the worthless. And he says, you're priceless. You're secular to me. So that's what God does. He comes down to people like Gideon, these weakling cowards, and he goes, you, mighty warrior. And God comes down into your world and he changes reality. And what's so cool about this story is that uh,
Gideon goes on to change the world. Gideon risks believing that what God says might actually be reality. And he goes on and he delivers the people of Israel. In fact, he does more than that. He becomes the stuff of legends. See, you got to read the story sometime to see how this all plays out. It's one of the coolest stories in the Bible. But what happens is that Gideon decides to believe God. Or he at least decides to risk it. You know what I mean? He decides to risk it. And he goes out, and Midian is assembled. 40,000 men. And he raises the war cry. And he rallies the people of Israel. And you know how many he gets? Ten. Ten thousand. Forty thousand against his ten thousand men. And he's a weakling. God, God comes down in the midst of this. And, and, and God says something about the reality of the situation. He says, there's too many men. And you can almost see Gideon here, right? He's like, no kidding, God, what are you going to do? He's like, there's too many men. So you know what we got to do? There's got to be less men. And man, Gideon couldn't agree more. So you know what God says to him? So get rid of some of your men. And can you almost see kind of like Gideon's jaw like hitting the floor at this point? What do you mean, get rid of some of my men? Because have you noticed something? Have you noticed that when you come to that place in your life and you actually dare to believe that what God says might actually be true, the very next thing that always happens is that it gets tested? Have you noticed that? That, that whenever you just risk to believe, something comes along to challenge in your face and intimidate you from following through on that belief. And this is what happens to Gideon. You have too many men. But I'm going to deliver Israel through you. And Gideon's got a choice to make. Now, the way this plays out is, is, is actually pretty cool. Gideon chooses to trust God on this, to follow through with what he says and get rid of some of his men. And this is how it kind of plays out. It's really kind of weird. They're in the desert, right? It's in the Middle East. It's hot down there. It's dry. People get thirsty. The men are camped out. They're by a stream. There's clear, fresh water coming out, and they want to get something to drink. So God comes to Gideon, and he says, Gideon, this is how I want you to sift the men. This is how I want you to decide who goes with you and who goes away. Take a look at how they drink. Now, anyone who kind of drinks by, like, cupping it up with their hands, you know, just drinking it with their mouth or something like that, or getting a cup, you nothing to do with them, all right? But anyone who sits there and drinks like a dog, you know, kind of, like, lapping it up or something like that, those are your men. Now, I don't know about you, but, like, when you turn your faucet on at home, are you, like, you know, underneath it, like, licking it out, or do you get a cup, right? Cup? Okay, I hope, yeah, yeah. Not in my house, maybe, but maybe hopefully in yours. Okay, imagine if you had to build your army by doing a draft and watching how people, like, went to the faucet. Do they use a cup or do they drink it underneath? And you know how many Gideon ends up with? 300 men. 
40,000 to his 300 men. God delivers them. God saves them. I mean, Midian is crushed. They're defeated. God comes down. Miracles happen. And Gideon becomes the stuff of legends. I don't know if you had a chance this past Christmas to be with us here at FOF. But for our Christmas Eve service, as we do this thing here, it's become something pretty just cool and special to me where, where we, we start going through all the Christmas passages and prophecies rooted all the way back in the Old Testament, just hearing the story played out. Something I, I, I've begun doing every year is I try to memorize all these passages because I've just found that when you take God's word and you kind of put it deep down, it just does something to you. And uh, this past season, memorizing some of these Isaiah passages, something struck me with this guy named Gideon. You know this Isaiah one. It's a famous Christmas passage, right? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know the one I'm talking about right there? There's something really fascinating that comes right before it. And this is what Isaiah says. For as in the days of Midian's defeat... You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. Every boot used in battle will be destined for burning, and every garment rolled in blood will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. Isaiah, like 500 years later, is still looking back, remembering the stories of what God did through this weakling named Gideon. You know, it's, uh, it's easy to think that because we're weak, that God cannot. But what the story of Gideon is all about is how God chooses the broken things of this world, the worthless things of this world, the weaklings and the cowards and the guilty. <laughs> And he moves mountains through them. It's encouraging to me because it says to me, God can take someone like me. God could do some, take someone like me and he can work his plans and unleash miracles and do all these amazing things and change reality. And I hope it's encouraging to you today because what it means is God can take you God can take you no matter how weak, broken, guilty, or worthless you are. He can take you and move mountains through you. All Gideon did was trust God. You know, it goes on, and... Uh, you look at Gideon, and it's amazing what God says to him. He just says, go in the strength you have. Don't worry about the results. Don't worry about how to make it happen. Don't worry about the outcomes. Just go in the strength you have. 
and leave the rest to me. And what you see happen in the story with Gideon is the Spirit of the Lord then comes on him. And heaven on earth starts to happen. What that means for you is simply this. God called Gideon. How is God calling you? God said things about Gideon that just didn't square with truth. What is God saying to you that doesn't square with your notion of reality? See, Gideon trusted them. I just want to ask you to do the same. Trust them and go in the strength you have and see what God can do. There's a, a New Testament passage that I think kind of sums all of this up where Paul writes this. God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not. Does any of the definition fit you right there? If so, you got to know that God is looking at you saying, I choose you. And I cannot wait to see what God accomplishes through you, O oh mighty weak ones. Through the death of a man in a state of pure shame and humility and weakness, God saved the world. That's what God does. I want to invite you to pray today. I want to invite you to just kind of take a moment and maybe you are here today and your reality is that you're weak or powerless or guilty or feeling worthless. And you know, the reality might be it's true. But I want to invite you to take it to God today and just kind of own that with him but to give it to him and let God speak a new reality into your life. Because maybe what God is saying to you is strong, whole, forgiven, holy, precious, mighty warrior, Segula. So God, we come as a people that are weak, and broken, and guilty, and afraid. People with regret, people with fear. God, may we hear what you have to say. May we believe in your reality over our own. God, I pray you speak to the people here today with those words that echo throughout your scriptures. 
that you speak to them what their reality is, even if it defies their own. God, we pray. Amen.